This is Ananin Kaikei, and you are listening to Voice of the Water Lily, an exploration of our ancestral music and history. We will be exploring music through the lens of history and history through the lens of music. Music is the chronicle of our story and a testament to our interconnectedness. By understanding our history, we understand ourselves, our ancestors, and our world better. It is my belief that music expresses what the soul means to say, what words fail to express. So, mi gente, join me on this musical and historical journey. Content warning. This episode contains content that may be disturbing and or triggering to some listeners, such as dictatorship, murder, torture, death, and suicide. Listener discussion is advised. Espanto como el que vive 
Welcome back to part two of our two-part commemoration of the 1973 coup in Chile that installed a brutal fascist regime with the full support of the U.S. government. Today we remember 50 years later. We remember so that the sacrifices of the ancestors are not in vain and are never forgotten. Because even memory is an act of resistance. If you have not yet, go listen to last week's episode because because it provides the whole backstory about Allende, his election, the social and economic situation in Chile at the time, and the U.S. interference. So make sure that you have listened to that one first. And we will continue the story where we left off, where we were talking about U.S. interference. And the situation in Chile had come to a point where there was a lot of division in the country. Uh, there was There was forces inside the country that wanted Allende gone, but... There was also very, very strong forces outside of the country, especially in the United States. So in 1973, uh, the situation started to escalate even more. The U.S. government and the CIA was funding right-wing fascist paramilitary groups that protested against Allende. They would attack Allende's supporters, and they would carry out terrorist attacks. One example is the Frente Nacionalista Patria y Libertad, or simply Patria y Libertad, the, and now we're going to refer to them from here on out as the PYL. And obviously the make the economy scream uh, thing that was coming from Washington, that makes sense if you listen to last week's episode, was obviously not cutting it because Allende was still very popular, more popular than ever among the workers. And to make matters worse, he had started calling out the U.S. government and their multinationalist public in front of the whole world. I mean, he had done this at the UN. He had accused the U.S. government and ITT, a U.S. corporation, of trying to overthrow his government. So, of course, the U.S. says more extreme actions needed to take place. They're now funding right-wing fascist paramilitary groups. And as I mentioned last week, the CIA and ITT began to fund worker strikes. There was a huge trucking strike that really threatened to shut down the whole country. And Allende did his best to address these complaints. And unexpectedly, see, this is what I find to be absolutely amazing. People began to volunteer to, uh, do, to do work. They would do volunteer work parties and keep things moving in the country. 
I think that's a great example. It illustrates just how popular Allende and his government were. How wonderful it is to volunteer. And uh, Victor Hara, we talk, just talked about people volunteering, doing volunteer work parties, volunteering to do that work because there was a huge trucker strike uh, that was in part at least funded by the CIA and uh, ITT. And one great example is Victor Hara. Victor Hara would, was also part of this, doing this volunteer work to keep things running in the country. But at this point, we're talking about these right-wing elements in the country had begun to escalate. And, at, and they, they were aided by outside forces, but sometimes uh, uh, some of these groups were just, just motivated by their own hatred for Allende, and they began these terrorist attacks. They were bombing bridges, pipelines, and things like that. The Chilean Navy, who was against Allende from the beginning, was also involved and supported these groups, such as the PYL, who uh, they directed to carry out these attacks. So they began bombing bridges, pipelines, energy towers, fuel supplies and other infrastructure. They also did uh, crop destruction and this is also when the wealthy residents of Santiago began to protest the government. So really over what is in the southern hemisphere winter of 1973, the opposition would get worse. And while his Allende's opponents had a slight majority in the Senate, it was enough to block new social programs, but not enough to roll back his programs or impeach him. So a more direct coup attempt would follow. And at this time in the military, there was increasing, uh, really increasing anti-Allende sentiment. So what would happen on, uh, in June of 1973 was what is known as El Tanquetazo. So by June of 1973, the military's anti-Allende sentiments had really run high. And there was talk of a coup in various branches of the military. And the PYL that I just spoke about supported this, uh, this coup attempt. 
So this coup attempt was led by Colonel Roberto Super. And I would like to say, though, that a 1971 CIA memo had listed Super as one of the eight officers who were amenable to a coup. I'd also like to mention that Super would later join the DINA under Pinochet and was tried as an accomplice of the murder of Victor Jara. Uh, and so I just do want, wanted to mention there, though, that he was list, mentioned in a CIA memo as someone who would be uh, amenable to a coup, who would go along with a coup. And so he actually tried to do this coup in June of uh, 1973. So the government learned of this plot about a week before it happened, and they made that information public on the 28th of June, 1973. However, Super decides to go along with this anyway. So on the 29th of June, he learned that he would be removed from his position in the military due to his role in a coup plot. So just before 9 a.m., he led about 16 armored vehicles, including six M41 tanks, and about 80 soldiers from the 2nd Armored Regiment in Santiago to attack Palacio La Moneda and the Ministry of Defense. By 11.30, they had been surrounded, and the fight was basically over. And almost immediately after the shooting had stopped, Allende supporters gathered, and they chanted, El pueblo unido jamás será vencido, and Allende, Allende, el pueblo te defende, which means Allende, the people are defending you. Super would later surrender that day, and that evening Allende would speak to a crowd of about 200,000 supporters in front of La Cruzando la pampa, llorando, llorando, la mujer del minero, sus pies sangrando, ¿por qué llorar a este pueblo? Voy preguntando, ay, 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 voy preguntando. Yo salgo a la pampa, voy a cantar No queremos extraños que vengan a quitar Lo que nos da la tierra, nuestra tranquilidad Ay, 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 nuestra tranquilidad Yo defiendo a mi tierra porque quiero, porque quiero secar el triste llanto de la mujer del pueblo. That song was Rolando Alatron with Yo defiendo a mi tierra, I defend my country. But now we must talk about another more kind of indirect attempt to remove, or, or less, it wasn't so much a coup attempt as just this trying to uh, remove Allende from office in, in a different kind of way. So by August 23rd, 1973, the Christian Democrats and the National Parties of the Chamber of Deputies, uh, which is the lower house in Chile's bicameral system, 
had passed a resolution accusing Allende of breaching the Constitution, saying, put an immediate end to the breaches of the Constitution with the goal of redirecting government activity towards the path of law and ensuring the constitutional order of our nation and the essential underpinnings of democratic coexistence among Chileans, end quote. Allende would respond to this on the 24th of August, 1973, saying that he had not that they had not gotten the two thirds majority needed to 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 pass this resolution and to declare that he was unconstitutional. And he actually rightfully predicted that this would facilitate the seditious intention of certain sectors because they had not gotten the constitutionally required majority. Allende also accused them of invoking the intervention of the armed forces and of order against a democratically elected government and of trying to cause a coup or civil war. And he said that the resolution was full of affirmations that have already been refuted beforehand. And all evidence shows you, you cannot find one thing that Allende did that was unconstitutional because he was he was all the way throughout his whole presidency constitutional. And so, of course, this this attempt really went nowhere. And he also wrote a wrote, uh, I sustain that never before has Chile had a more democratic government than that over which I have had the honor to preside. I solemnly reiterate my decision to develop democracy and a state of law to their ultimate consequences. Parliament has made itself a bastion against the transformations and has done everything it can to perturb the functioning of the finances and of the institutions, sterilizing all creative initiatives, end quote. And really, because there was no evidence at all that Allende had done anything or had been unconstitutional in any way, and because they were wrong in this instance, because they couldn't declare him unconstitutional without a majority... Uh, this this attempt really went nowhere. But this we're now we're talking about the end of August. We're talking about just uh, weeks before the September 11th coup. De nuevo quieren manchar mi tierra con sangre obrera. Los que hablan de libertad y tienen las manos negras. Los que quieren dividir. Llevan, 
me esparce en el corazón y me aventan la garganta así cantar al poeta mientras el alma me suene por los caminos del pueblo desde ahora y para siempre was Victor Jara with Vientos del Pueblo and I find it he recorded that with Inti Mani. I find that very significant because he's talking about almost a war against the workers and he says once more they want to stain my country with the workers blood those who talk of liberty and those whose hands are blackened those who wish to separate the mother from her sons and want to reconstruct the, cro the cross that Christ dragged. It's a very interesting song because That was recorded by Victor in 1973 for what would tragically be his last album. And it sounds as if he felt what was happening. You know, he, he couldn't help but see it because at this point, the country's divided. We have multiple attempts to remove Allende from office just that summer. And there's terrorist attacks and there's so many things that are happening. He couldn't help but see what was happening in the country at the time. But uh, even Victor couldn't have imagined uh, what, would, what would soon happen. The Tanque Tasso had really unfortunately shown those who were hell-bent on getting rid of Allende exactly how not to do a coup because Super really did something that was quite ridiculous in that way. The, the government already knew uh, of, the, of the plot and, uh, beforehand. So, you know, it was quite, it was quite uh, ridiculous what Super had tried to do, but it had shown those elements that wanted to get rid of Allende. This is what you don't do. On the 24th of August, 1973, General Carlos Prats, remember, he had been the one, he was uh, General Schneider's successor, would resign due to a really, uh, his embarrassing conduct in a traffic incident earlier in that month. He had had an incident of uh, road rage, and it had it become very embarrassing. A lot of people saw it, and it, was, uh, it caused him to have to resign because it was, uh, it was very embarrassing uh, how he conducted himself on that occasion. So Augusto Pinochet is chosen as his uh, replacement. And Pratt had he adhered to the Schneider Doctrine. He was a constitutionalist, and he was very much against a military coup. He was all for the political military exclusivity. He didn't want the two things to come together, just like General Schneider. So he followed that uh, Schneider Doctrine. Nonetheless, Pinochet really seemed to be loyal to the government. There was nothing that made Allende or anyone else think that he was going to try uh, to, to do a coup. In the months before the coup, most of the top generals and officers played what Orlando Letellier, who was Allende's minister of defense, called a double game. Uh, Pinochet, as along with the other generals, Mendoza, Benavides, Urbina, and Lee, Uh, and also Admirals Carvajal and Merino were all really playing Allende because he thought that they were a lawyer to the government, that they would never try to do anything to undermine uh, the government in that way. And uh, I'm going to read here from what Letellier wrote about Urbina. He says, Urbina also joined Pinochet's double game and acted in terms of a great traitor. He had a reputation as an Allendista military man, but he had been Pinochet's classmate and even his confidant during the Unidad Popular government. So really, he's, Allende is being fooled by the top people in the military at this point, and he has absolutely no idea that, uh, what, they would, what they would do. That's really sadly exemplified by something that happened on the 9th of September of 73, where Pinochet and Urbina were, while they're actively planning a coup, 
met with Allende and they asked him to, and he had asked Pinochet to draft an emergency plan in case of a military coup. Because Allende had rising concerns that the Carabineros, who were the national police, were turning against the government. And so Pinochet promised to have it to him by the 10th of September. Now we're talking about a day before the coup and he's saying, oh yes, I'll draft an emergency plan in case the, the armed forces were to, were, to, were to turn against the government. Meanwhile, he's actually planning on doing that in just, uh, in just a day. On the day of the coup, the 11th of September, the only high-ranking member of the military that stood loyal to the government was the Navy Admiral Montero. And Montero's car and communications had been sabotaged so that he would not interfere with the coup. So he couldn't even try to, to help Allende when the coup actually happened. A CIA memo from the 10th of September 1973 actually reads that it says, quote, the coup attempt will begin on September 11th. And this proves that the U.S. government had knowledge about the coup and its timing. And it's really perhaps hinting because they're referring to it as the coup attempt will begin on the September 11th. It's really hinting at this long term knowledge of its planning. And of course, many will still argue that and, and we haven't found evidence for this when it comes to documents that have been released or anything. But many will argue that the U.S. was sending weapons to these anti-Allende forces in the military and that they had some kind of more active role. But what we can prove thus far is that they had absolute knowledge of it. President Nixon had knowledge of it. And and of course, it, it is absolutely understandable that a lot of people will, will, will say that the U.S. government had a more active role in this because, I mean, we, we've seen if you listen to last week's episode, that they were trying all kinds of different plans to, remo to, to stop Allende from taking office, stop him from being elected, and later remove him via a coup. So it, it's, it's really no surprise. And if we were to find out, say, in many years that, yeah, the U.S. had a more active role in, say, sending weapons to the coup plotters, that would absolutely be, absolutely be no surprise because, as we can see, look at the active role that they took in trying to interfere with the election of 1970. And also, there's a bit more evidence of U.S. knowledge beforehand. Uh, and as I was saying, President Nixon had had uh, knowledge of this on the days of the 8th of September and the 11th of September. These daily briefings were released just recently on the 25th of August of this year, 2023. And they really show that, yes, the U.S. government was very much aware about the planning for the coup. And while the denial of direct U.S. involvement in the September 11th coup continues, three things cannot be denied. And this is what I want to mention before I talk about what happened on the 11th of September. Henry Kissinger, in his own words, said in a telecon with the president on the 16th of September 1973 that U.S. government operations had, quote unquote, created the conditions best as possible. And of course, there's also this continued U.S. funding of propaganda at the time of the coup. And the last thing is that there were groups in Chile, there were terrorists, really terrorist groups, that were sub fully supported by the U.S. government. They were being funded, they were being armed, and all these things by the U.S. government uh, against Allende. So these three things cannot be denied. Whether they were sending weapons and directly, directly involved in the September 11th coup, that has not been uncovered yet. The jury really is still out on that one. And of course, the last thing that I wanted to mention before we get we talk about what happened on the 11th of September is that the missiles used against La Moneda and the planes used to bomb it were sent by the U.S. as part of the military aid that had increased during Allende's presidency. Meanwhile, they if you listen to last week's episode, I talked about this. 
the military aid for Chile had increased by millions while they weren't even sending them uh, auto parts that they needed. So it's quite clear uh, that the U.S. government's role is, 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 is in fact, quite, uh, in, quite really key to this whole coup. But we're going to talk about what happened on the 11th of September. At 7 a.m. on the 11th of September, 1973, the Navy captured Valparaíso and they closed radio and television stations. Very early that morning, the prefect of Valparaíso informed Allende of the military actions and Allende went to La Moneda with his small security detail, his uh, Grupo de Amigos Personales, as he called them. By 8 a.m., most of the radio stations in Santiago had either been closed, bombed, or taken. And Allende had received incomplete information. He was told that only a sector of the Navy was rebelling. Allende and the Defense Minister Orlando Letellier could not communicate with the Navy Commander Admiral Montero, whose cars and communications had been sabotaged because he was the only commander that really stood loyal to the Allende government and to the Constitution. The Navy leadership was uh, transferred to Jose Torbio uh, Merino, who was a coup plotter, and he kind of appointed himself the, the, the Navy, as Navy commander. Gustavo Lee, the commander-in-chief of the Air Force, didn't answer Allende's calls because, of course, he's involved in the plot as well. And Jose Maria Sepulveda, the general director of Los Carbineros, and Alfredo Jornat, who was the head of investigations police, both answered, and they actually headed straight to uh, La Moneda. We're going to hear... A clip now of Isabel Letellier, who was the wife of Orlando Letellier, talking about that day and um, talking about what happened, her, her memory of what happened that day. And uh, I apologize because the audio quality on this is not very good. But take a listen. So by 5 a.m., the telephone rang. I took the phone and it was the president calling Orlando. Orlando took the phone. And the president said, Orlando, there are rumors of a coup. I want you to check what's going on. By then, Orlando was the Minister of Defense. And he calls to his office as the Ministry of Defense. It was 5 a.m. And there was somebody there who answered. Orlando said, who is this? And it was a general. And he didn't ask him the obvious question, what are you doing in my office? <laughs> but Orlando asked me again, take the phone, and he said, listen to the voice of a traitor. By now it's 6.30, and the president said, Orlando, I want you to go as soon as you can to the Minister of Defense to see if we still have anybody that is loyal to us. And I was not going to see Orlando for many, many months. Later on, he told me that he had gone to the Ministry of Defense. He arrived there. The doors were closed. He knocked on the door and he said, open the door. This is the minister. So somebody inside said, oh, let the minister come in. The door opened and he felt <laughs> the rifles in his back. And he turns around and one of them is his bodyguard. And he was taken to the basement and he was stripped of his clothes. And there were many people there, many people. That's what that he said. would actually be in prison for 12 months. He would be transferred to various uh, detention centers, tortured before he was released. And he fled to Venezuela. Meanwhile, while this coup is in progress and Pinochet is like the, 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 the main 
plotter of this coup, Allende is convinced of his loyalty. And he thought that he must be arrested or detained somewhere, and that's why he couldn't reach him. And he also thought, because he'd been given incomplete information, that there were still sectors of the military that supported the government. By 8.30, the armed forces had declared control of the country, and this is when he finally realized how large the coup was. But at this point, he refuses to resign. By 9 a.m., the Carabineros, about 300 of them, had come to uh, defend Allende, and when they were told by their commander, who, Sepulveda, who was part of the coup plotters, to leave, he ordered them not to defend Allende and to leave. So these 300 carbineros ha had arrived to defend La Moneda, and then they left because their commander, who was part of the coup, had ordered them to. So now they basically controlled the whole country except for the city center of Santiago. And this is really quite tragic, but the people's love for Allende is confirmed by these eyewitness accounts that they say, and this is just heartbreaking, but there was groups of campesinos and fa factory workers that were heading towards La Moneda in futile attempts to defend their president. I mean, it was just really quite tragic uh, when you think about it. It's, it's really heartbreaking. The military then declared that they would bomb La Moneda and Allende continues to refuse to surrender. The Socialist Party and his Cuban advisors proposed the idea of him for to escape to San Joaquin area in southern Santiago and then try to counterattack. But Allende refused again. He wanted to he never wanted to to move forward with violent means because his whole point was to prove that this could be uh, socialism, that 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 his government could stay in power via the democratic processes. And he was never going to go against that. The military then tried to negotiate with him. And again, he's refusing. And he said it was his constitutional duty to stay in office. And instead, he makes a final speech. My friends, surely this will be the last opportunity for me to address you. The Air Force has bombed the antennas of Radio Magallanes. My words do not have bitterness, but disappointment. May they be a moral punishment for those who have betrayed their oath, soldiers of Chile, titular commanders-in-chief, Admiral Merino, who has designated himself commander of the Navy, and Mr. Mendoza, the despicable general, who only yesterday pledged his loyalty and fidelity to the government, and who also has appointed himself chief of the Carabineros. Digna de miles y miles de chilenos, no 
podrá ser cegada definitivamente. Tienen la fuerza, podrán avasallarlo, pero no se detienen los procesos sociales ni con el crimen ni con la fuerza. Given these facts, the only thing for me to say is to the workers, I am not going to resign. Placed in a historic transition, I will pay for the loyalty to the people with my life. And I say to them that I am certain that the siege which we have planted in the good conscience of thousands and thousands of Chileans will not be shriveled forever. They have force and they will be able to dominate us, but social processes can be arrested by neither crime nor force. History is ours and people make history. La lealtad que siempre tuvieron, la confianza que depositaron en un hombre que solo fue intérprete de grandes anhelos de justicia, que empeñó su palabra y que respetaría la constitución y la ley y así lo hizo. En este momento definitivo, el último en que yo pueda dirigirme a ustedes, Quiero que aprovechen la lección. El capital foráneo, el imperialismo, unido a la reacción, creó el clima para que las Fuerzas Armadas rompieran su tradición, la que le, la que le enseñara Schneider y que reafirmara el comandante Araya. Víctimas del mismo sector social, que hoy estará en sus casas, esperando con mano ajena reconquistar el poder. Workers of my country, I want to thank you for the loyalty you always had, the confidence that you deposited in a man who was only an interpreter of the great yearnings for justice, who gave his word that he would respect the Constitution and the law, and did just that. At this definitive moment, the last moment when I can address you, I wish you to take advantage of the lesson, foreign capital, imperialism, together with the reaction created, the climate in which the armed forces broke their tradition, the tradition taught by General Schneider and reaffirmed by Commander Araya, victims of the same social sector who today are hoping with foreign assistance to reconquer the power to continue defending their profits and their privileges. A la obrera que trabajó más, a la madre que supo nuestra preocupación por los niños. Me dirijo a los profesionales de la patria, a los profesionales patriotas, a los que hace días estuvieron trabajando contra la sedición auspiciada por los colegios profesionales, colegios de clase para defender también las ventajas que la sociedad capitalista le dio a todos. Me dijo a la juventud, aquellos que cantaron, entregaron su alegría y su espíritu de lucha. Me dijo al hombre de Chile, al obrero, al campesino, al intelectual, aquellos que serán perseguidos porque en nuestro país el fascismo ya estuvo hace muchas horas presente en los atentados terroristas, volando los puentes, cortando la línea férrea, destruyendo los oleoductos y los gasoductos, frente al silencio que tenían la obligación de 
I address you above all the modest woman of our land, the campesina who believed in us, the mother who knew our concern for her children. I address professionals of Chile, patriotic professionals who continued working against the sedition that was supported by professional associations, classist associations that also defended the advantages of capitalist society. I address the youth, those who sang and gave us joy in their spirit of struggle. I address the man of Chile, the worker, the farmer, the intellectual, those who will be persecuted because in our country, fascism has already been present for many hours in terrorist attacks, blowing up bridges, cutting the railroad tracks, destroying the oil and gas pipelines in the face of the silence of those who had the obligation to act. They were committed. History will judge them. will be silenced and the calm metal instrument of my voice will no longer reach you. It does not matter. You will continue hearing it. I will always be next to you. At least my memory will be that of a man of dignity who was loyal to his country. The people must defend themselves, but they must not sacrifice themselves. The people must not let themselves be destroyed or riddled with bullets, but they cannot be humiliated either. Workers of my country, I have faith in Chile and its destiny. Other men will overcome this dark and bitter moment when treason seeks to prevail. Go forward knowing that sooner rather than later, the great avenues will open up again and free men will walk through them to construct a better society. Long live Chile. Long live the people. Long live the workers. These are my last words, and I am certain that my sacrifice will not be in vain. I am certain that, at the very least, it will be a moral lesson that will punish felony, cowardice, and treason. At this point, Lee, the Air Force commander, ordered the bombing of La Moneda, and Pinochet ordered armored and infantry forces to advance towards La Moneda. They moved towards the palace and then retreated because the snipers on the roof had fired at them. They were then, moments later, however, they had been killed by uh, the helicopter squadron and the troops advanced again. Allende's guards did not surrender until 2.30 p.m. And by then, Allende had died by suicide. And despite the continued rumors and theories surrounding the president's death, in 2011, the case was laid to rest unanimously when his body was exhumed at the request of his family and forensically analyzed. And there was really no doubt that Allende did take his own life that day right before the, the palace was bombed. 
Let's listen to Juan Garces, who was one of Allende's aides at the time, talking about why did Allende continue until the end? Because he had an opportunity to to uh, to get away. He had an opportunity. Multiple the the, the military had even tried to negotiate with him, and uh, his advisors were telling him to try and escape to a different part of the country, but he refused. And Juan Garces talks about why he did that. Juan Garces actually Allende really saved his life in a way because. He took him. He took everyone that was in the palace that day to the exit, and he ple he asked all of them to please leave because they're saying the palace is going to be bombed, so everyone was going to die, and he says please leave, and all of them refused. So he told Juan Garces that he needed to leave because he needed to tell everyone. He needed to tell the world what he had seen that day and what he what 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 Allende and what the Unidad Popular had been trying to achieve what they had been trying to do for the country and, and that's exactly actually what Juan Garces would do later on he'd be involved in trying to bring Pinochet to justice in Spain but we're going to hear Juan Garces talking about uh, why Allende he refused to refused to surrender so why Allende resisted still three four hours more and decided to uh, to to fight until his death this is a political message of resistance of a legitimate commander-in-chief of the armed forces that was facing an insurrection, an act of indiscipline, and he didn't abandon his post of command, and he faced it with resources that he had, particularly the legitimacy, the democratic legitimacy, and then he wanted to let this heritage to his people. And we are now realizing that 40 years later, this legacy, this political legacy, is being taken in their hands by, by, hands by the uh, Chilean people. A curfew was instituted that evening, and the repression would begin that very day. By the 13th of September, the junta had dissolved Congress and banned all parties that had been part of popular unity. They also took control of all media and began to spread propaganda. El Mercurio and La Tercera de la Hora were the only newspapers that were allowed to continue. And Ariel Dorfman explains that Pinochet, after Allende, after Allende commits suicide, how Pinochet is trying to make Allende to the first desaparecido. And this is really symbolic because of Allende's meaning to the people. And it would also foreshadow what, would, what, what Pinochet was going to do to so many other people in the country. But let's listen to Ariel talking about that because I find it to be very significant. Also, any background music that you hear in this is from the original uh, documentary that this comes from, which is linked up in the description. But, uh, and I'm sorry again for the audio quality. There is a recording of Pinochet's voice. El avión echa un cajón, se embala y se manda a enterrar a Cuba. Ya no va a enterrar. And Pinochet says, you know, we gotta do what Allende is. What's his dad? They say, let's just put him in a box, and there should be no funeral, and we should just hide him. He's trying to turn Allende into the first desaparecido. He's trying to turn him into the first missing person. What he, he, he wants to do with Allende is what he's going to be doing afterwards with, with more than 3,000 people. Uh, and that's a large proportion of the dead in Chile. To take those people and put them in graves and not allow their families to ever mourn them in the sense of not know whether they're living or dead. La luz del día Exacta en tu perfil La madrugada Cuando de pronto 
septiembre hizo callar tu vida, tu voz y tu mirada. Se fue tu cuerpo a la extensión del sueño, mientras tu sombra caminaba a tu encuentro y poco a poco te alejaste de ti mismo hacia el recinto del amor definitivo. El tiempo no se muere con tu tiempo, a pesar de la invariable dispersión en tu distancia, pero aprende la certeza que en toda lontananza la historia pertenece a tu Siente, amanece, allende. Se siente, amanece, allende. Espacio a los sentidos, con solo ansias de justicias necesarias para cumplir así los signos prometidos. Pregunto entonces por tu asombro entero, desde el umbral del momento decisivo. Tus ojos anunciaban el otro tiempo de lo posible que hoy en día es desafío. Pregunten por su aliento detenido, quien es por vida y omisión. No conocieron su palabra, pues no escapa la evidencia de su vida sin tardanza. Reclama una presencia en el camino Se siente, amanece, allende Se siente, amanece, allende The Technical University of Santiago would be one building that was surrounded by the military on the night of September 11th. And the next day, the military just began to fire at the building, at the central building of the university without warning. Hundreds were abducted and taken prisoner, and they would be detained at a stadium called Estadio Chile. And of course, that stadium uh, was now called Victor Jara Stadium because a singer-songwriter was detained and tortured there for five days before he was murdered. And uh, almost immediately, during the days after the coup, about 40,000 people were arrested simply for being leftists. Many were held in concentration camps, the detention centers that the military had turned Santiago's stadiums into. 
the Estadio Nacional, which is also in Santiago, would hold about uh, 12,000 prisoners between the 11th of September and the 7th of November, including two American journalists, Charles Horman and Frank Tarugi, who would both be executed. And Charles Horman, I feel, is an it's important to talk about him. Uh, he was in Chile. He was an American journalist in Chile investigating the assassination of General Schneider. And on the 16th of September, he was detained and taken to the National Stadium and he would be executed on the 19th, 19th of September. And he was just 31 years old. The embassy, actually, the U.S. embassy in Chile made no efforts to find him. And the declassified CIA memos show that the, at the very least, the U.S. had apathy towards this, this case. And at most, what a lot of people say is that the U.S. government may have been involved in the murder of Charles Horman. And it was actually revealed that in 1999, a Chilean intelligence officer claimed that a CIA agent was in the national stadium and that he made the decision to execute Charles Horman because he, quote unquote, knew too much. Uh, and of course, now it's been said that this guy wasn't very credible. And that's very possible. I mean, he might have just been lying and he just said this. But Charles Horman's wife, Joyce, who continues to fight for justice in his case, maintains to this day that Charles wouldn't have been killed if by the Chilean military if he hadn't received at least an okay from someone in the in the U.S. government. And of course, the 1982 film Missing is about the Horman case, and uh, it alleges that the U.S. government was complicit in his murder as well as that of Frank Tarugi. And Frank Tarugi is, is less known about what happened to him, but we know that he was an American student and journalist working in Chile at the time. And on the 20th of September, he was abducted from his home and imprisoned at the Estadio Nacional. General Pedro Espinosa is currently in prison for both Horman and Tarugi's deaths. And this, the U.S. role in this, in, the, in these cases, is not fully illuminated. Uh, and it, it, the jury's really kind of still out on this one because a, a lot of people will say, yeah, the U.S. government was complicit in this. And at, 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 you know, at least they acted with complete apathy to the murders, to both of these murders of these American citizens that were working as journalists in the country at the time. Despite their knowledge of what had happened to them, they also made no effort to seek justice in either case. And at worst, what some people allege is that the U.S. government was complicit or even involved in the murders of two of their own citizens. So we really don't know. We don't know what happened in those cases. Nonetheless, two very, very tragic cases. There were at least 80 concentration camps and detention centers in Santiago alone. And then later on, quite uh, soon after the coup, torture centers such as Villagrimaldi would be created. Meanwhile, in Washington, on the 16th of September, 1973, Kissinger would phone President Nixon to tell him that nothing of very great con consequence, and I quote, had happened. And that the quote-unquote Chilean thing was getting consolidated. Kissinger would go on to say, almost astounded at the ingratitude of the Chilean people for not being happy that their democratic choice had been so savagely destroyed, saying, I mean, instead of celebrating, in the Eisenhower period, we would be heroes. The 16th of September was also the same day that Victor Jara would write his last song, Canto que mal me sales, Estadio Chile. The same day that he would be savagely murdered and his body dumped in the streets of Santiago. As thousands suffered the terror and agony that Victor describes in his last unfinished song, Nixon and Kissinger were actually chatting about a football game and matters of not very great consequence and the ingratitude of the Chilean people as they endured unspeakable horrors. And in fact, I'm going to let you listen to a translation of Estadio Chile 
recorded here, performed here by Pete Seeger. So here he sings at least a part of the lyrics of Victor Jara's last and unfinished song, Estadio Chile, Canto Que No en esta parte de la ciudad This is the last poem written by a man named Victor Jara of Chile It was 11 years ago September 11th Your tax dollars and mine to overthrow the government down there. About 5,000 people were rounded up and put in a big stadium. It was a scene of horror, there were people being executed, tortured. Then the captain of the guards recognized Victor Hara. But this last poem that he wrote was smuggled out. I'll just give you a literal translation. We are 5,000 here in this little part of the city. We are 5,000. How many more will we be in the whole city and the country? Ten thousand hands which could seed the field, make run the factory. How much humanity with hunger, pain, panic, and terror. There are six of us, lost in space among the stars. One dead. One beaten like I never believed a human beings could be so beaten. The other four wanting to leave all the terror. One leaping into space. Others beating their heads against the wall. All with their gazes fixed on death. The military carry out their plans with precision. Blood is medals for them. Slaughter is the badge of heroism. Oh my God, was it for this you created the world? Was it for this the seven days of amazement and toil. The blood of Compañero Presidente is stronger than bombs, is stronger than machine guns. Oh, you song, you come out so badly when I must sing the terror what I see, I never saw. What I felt and what I feel must come out. Ara brotar el 
momento Arra brotar al momento between the 30th of September and 22nd of October 1973, a squad of, of army officers appointed by Pinochet, led by Sergio Arellano Stark, would fly a helicopter from prison to prison all over Chile, torturing and murdering as many as 100 people, though an exact number has not been determined, that had been taken prisoner after the 11th of September. And this death squad was known as the Caravan of Death. And the victims were buried in unmarked graves, sometimes dumped in mine shafts or in the Atacama Desert. And by, by the time many of the bodies in the Atacama Desert were found, the military would then claim that they had died because of the desert's harsh conditions because of the state that they were in by the time that they were found. Arellano, remember he's, led, he's leading this death squad, later claimed that these actions were carried out against his orders, despite there being enough evidence to convict him of the deaths of four people. And this was in 2008, by the way. Arellano was also known to have punished multiple officers that he said were not being harsh enough. Oleguer Benaventes Bustos, who was the second in command of the Talca Regiment, also pointed out that these heinous murders were often done in front of the soldiers at the military ba barracks. And they were a tool to keep the soldiers compliant and so that they wouldn't even think about going against the orders uh, of their commanders. And so they didn't try to go against this system of violence because it was using it was a system that that. It became a way, it became a form of government. It became these torture, the disappearances, these heinous murders became a form of government. And to keep these soldiers, and many of them we have to remember were conscripts, okay? There was mandatory military service at the time in Chile. And uh, some of them were, uh, you know, as young, we're talking about people that are as young as 18 years old, uh, being forced to do absolutely heinous things. And so they had, they, they, they were using this uh, as a way to keep these soldiers in line and compliant to their officers' commands. And some, such as General Joaquin Lagos, who was the Pinochet-appointed general of Antofagasta and the commander of the Army 1st Division, zone chief in the state of siege, resigned after Arellano executed 56 people in his district behind his back. And Lagos would recount in 2001, he says, quote, I felt pain, helplessness, anger, everything you can imagine, that they did these things of that nature in my jurisdictional area and behind my back. And years later, he was asked why he hadn't at least returned the bodies of these people uh, to their families, at least. And he said, he responded, he said, I was ashamed. He said, because of how gruesome these murders had been. He says they were no longer human bodies. They wanted to at least put them together again but and leave them more decent, but you couldn't. And so even even people that are part of the military that are that are appointed by Pinochet were so horrified by what the military was doing that, you know, we, we have this uh, Joaquin Lagos just uh, stepping down because it, it was just so incredibly horrific because it wasn't that they were just executing people, but they were doing these things, the most heinous things in the worst uh, in the worst ways that you can uh, imagine. It was true horror. And. Pinochet's helicopter pilot, Oreguer Benavente, actually said that he had thrown prisoners into the Pacific Ocean or over the Andes Mountains. This was what would be called death flights. And they were literally throwing prisoners, people, out uh, alive, out of helicopters over the ocean. And these also were flights that were used to make... Uh, make people that were killed disappear basically they would they would just dump bodies from from helicopters osvaldo romo would actually openly admit to this without any remorse in 1995 saying that he would do it again and leave nobody alive and he actually said romo actually 
said that it was the DINA's mistake. He said that he would argue with his generals to leave no one alive and that that was his regret. He also said that he wished he'd thrown these bodies into a volcano because no one would think to look there. This is just levels of evil and socio sociopathic, deeply sociopathic and evil behavior that it really is incomprehensible. I mean, I just cannot understand how someone could admit to these things with not even a, a hint of remorse. It is just truly horrifying, really. Uh, it, it, horrifying is not even a word to to describe that because you, you, you try to try to comprehend how can human beings do this to another person? How? How is this possible? And it's just, it's incomprehensible. It, it really is. And then, of course, we have places like Via Grimaldi, which was a really infamous torture center. It had originally been actually this three-acre estate with a theater and meeting rooms and a school that was open to the community. It was like a community space, and it was a gathering place for intellectuals and artists that were on the left. And then, after Pinochet takes over, he, the owner is forced to sell it, and he, they threatened his family if he didn't sell it. They threatened his family. And so he's forced to sell it, and the DINA set up this interrogation torture center there, and about 4,500 people were imprisoned there at certain points and it was headed by the dina uh agent and member of the caravan of death uh as i mentioned marcelo moren brito and over 200 people uh were, were disappeared there and there's many uh, horrifying accounts really just true truly horrifying accounts of, of people that were uh that were there here we can hear rene castro who was a teacher he was part of the student federation and he was detained uh, and tortured at via grimaldi and uh, so here he, he talks a bit about how that affected him and how just incomprehensible all of this was. I never imagined that would happen in my country. I never. Those militaries, our own people, brutally treating political opponent. And people think it still is, is a part of the democratic system. And it was not. And of course, there were over 200 people that were disappeared at Via Grimaldi. And what's important to me is to say some of their some of their names because these are just these aren't just people desaparecidos that are nameless faceless individuals but these are human beings uh with with families and people that love them and and they were just people okay and so it's really important to 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 to, to mention their names to talk about them um carlos lorca was a physician he was the leader of the socialist party of chile and he was the president of the students federation and he was he was abducted on the 25th of june 1975 and taken to Via Grimaldi and disappeared there. Juan Maino, who was a photographer and activist and the leader of the Movimiento de Acción Popular Unitario, which was a small leftist political party that was part of the Unidad Popular campaign, was abducted on the 26th of May, 1976, and he was also taken to Via Grimaldi and disappeared. Nothing was ever heard of uh, from him again. Carmelo Soria was born in Spain. He was part of the Communist Party and he moved to Chile. And he became a U.N. diplomat and he was an advisor to the popular unity government. And he stayed in Chile because of his diplomatic immunity while the dictatorship, when, 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 when Pinochet took over. And he was helping people leave the country uh, and, and flee from, this, from, from the repression. And he was abducted on the 14th of July, 1976. And he was actually taken to the house of Michael Townley, who was a U.S. expat and member of the DINA before he was later transferred to Via Grimaldi, tortured in both of these places, and his body was discovered days later in a sunken car in the Canal de Carmen in Santiago. The government claimed that Soria had died in a car accident, but that obviously was, uh, was not true. 
we also have the stories of those survivors of people that were taken there that, that to, and they tell the stories of what happened to them. One of them being Michelle Bachelet, who, as we know, is the was is the former president of Chile. She later became the president uh, and she was became the first female president of Chile. Her father was a brigadier general, Alberto Bachelet, who was tortured after he opposed the coup. And this would actually lead to his death in March of 1974. Then his daughter, Michelle, and his and and his wife were both taken and detained at Via Grimaldi. And there, Michelle said that they were really uh, threatened with each other's murders. And it was really a, a quite horrific experience while they were detained there. And they later uh, left the country after that. But she would return later on and become very influential politically before later becoming uh, the president of the of the country. And of course, this place, Via Grimaldi, you know, we a lot of people hear the name and they have the and they've never heard it before, but it's been a place that's really been likened to Abu Ghraib. And it's been, the horrors that, that, that were committed there are, are just uh, incomprehensible. And it's something that it defies human human logic to, to, to even understand how people can, can do these things. It, it is just uh, truly, truly horrific. And really the only way I can say is, is incomprehensible because it, 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 it makes no sense in any way. Marcelo Moren Brito, remember he's the head of Via Grimaldi, was actually charged with crimes against humanity and sentenced to 300 years in prison. He would remain in prison for 20 years until his death on the 11th of September 2015. And at least that is one instance where there was at least a bit of a bit of justice uh, because Moren Brito just committed as being head of Via Grimaldi, committed some uh, true atrocities, crimes against uh, crimes against humanity. We're going to hear a song here from Iyapu, an amazing Chilean folkloric band. Aunque los pasos toquen. And I would like to tell everybody, please go to the to look at their new video that's being put out on YouTube. They just re-recorded this and they did a video with it. You have to watch the video. Please go check it out. Just go to their YouTube channel, Iyapu, Aunque los pasos toquen. There's a link in the description. One of the scenes that affected me the most is at the Estadio Nacional. And there's a wall that has a quote painted on it. And it says, Un pueblo sin memoria es un pueblo sin futuro. And that to me is so, so profound and so accurate. I mean, really. And in the video, they went to all these detention and torture sites and they sing there. And you can see them putting red carnations on the tombs and at these memorial sites. And it's really beautiful. Um, it's very sad. It's very emotional. I know I cried so much watching that, but it's very beautiful. And if to me, I said, that's what honoring your ancestors looks like. That's what, that's what memory looks like. That's what memory as an act of resistance looks like. And, uh, so please, please go check it out because it's, uh, it's very, really, very, very beautiful. But we're going to hear Iyapu singing Aunque Los Pasos go. And it really is simply a song of, of memory, never forgetting those who were murdered, those who were disappeared, never forgetting the ancestors and their sacrifices. Aunque los pasos toquen,
By November of 1973, the Dirección de Inteligencia Nacional, the DINA, often called Pinochet's Gestapo, had been created, and it was headed by Colonel Manuel Contreras, who also would later be sentenced to 526 years in prison for his role in the murder of General Prats, who had actually fled the country and become a very uh, vocal opponent of Pinochet and his wife, Sofia. And also, so he would be sentenced to 526 years in prison for his role in their murders. And uh, Raúl... Iturriaga is actually currently serving a life sentence for his role in the murders of 16 Chilean leftists. So there is two more examples of uh, cases where these individuals were act actually brought to justice in, in some way. But what's important to talk about about the DINA was that Contreras, the head of the DINA, had contacts in the CIA until 1977. And also... Pinochet had passed a decree, and it's called Decree Number 521, that allowed the DINA to arrest anyone as long as there was a state uh, emergency. And what's important is that to say is that almost all of Pinochet's rule was under a state of emergency. So this meant that the DINA could literally arrest anyone for no reason at all. The DINA became separate from the army in June of 1974, and it had been called the DINA until August of 77 when it was renamed the Central Nacional de Informaciones, the CNI. And that would continue until 1990, until Pinochet uh, was removed from power finally after 17 years, and we're going to talk about that later. But the CNI, what they did was absolutely no different from what the DINA had done. I mean, there was just, there was no difference. They had carried out the assassinations of ex-general Carlos Prats, who, as I said, was vocal against uh, Pinochet, and also of the... Uh, the former president, Eduardo Frey, and later of Orlando Letelier. The DINA also worked closely with a U.S. expat, Michael Townley, who is closely tied to the Letelier assassination. And in 2005, while being tried for his crimes against humanity, Contreras would accuse the CIA and Cuban CIA agent and terrorist Luis Posada Carriles, who was involved in that horrific bombing in 1976 of a Cuban airline that killed 76 people. Uh, and he was also part of the failed uh, Bay of Pigs uh, invasion. And he, has really, he was trained by the CIA, and he has a, a list of crimes that are really a mile long, including the assassination of Orlando Letelier. And he was at once considered a terrorist by the FBI and employed by the CIA. I mean, how this is possible, I don't understand. He actually once said it plainly. He says, quote, the CIA taught us everything. Explosives, how to kill, bomb, trained us to act, trained us in acts of sabotage. So he says it really quite literally there. Uh, Posada Carrides would live in the United States with impunity, a free man until his death in 2018 at the age of 92. But during his trial, Contreras really kind of turns around and points the finger at the CIA and the CIA, this, this uh, Cuban uh, CIA agent, Luis Posada Carriles. And he really says, yeah, they were involved too. And the CIA was very involved in what would later be called 
Operation Condor, working with the DINA to disappear and murder many people. So yeah, the CIA kind of kind of helped these governments, uh, not just of Pinochet, but about many other dictators in Latin America at the time, create databases cre and help them uh, create this intelligence uh, agency to to go after to persecute leftists in the country. Presidente marchado por las calles del mundo, las plazas y los parques, los lagos, los volcanes, los ríos memorables, los paramos, las ruinas, los trigales, los bosques llenos de voces verdes en busca de tu nombre. Y allá encontré tu nombre. He pescado botellas en el mar con tu rostro Dibujado en oscuros papeles navegantes Y poemas tallados a cuchillo en las mesas De bares infinitos cerca del fin del mundo Pero en Chile tu patria no hay nada que te nombre estás en las calles de Chile ni en sus muros, no estás en los mercados ni en las escuelas rotas, pero sí en la memoria de los que defendiste con tu ideal, tus manos y tu muerte inmortal. Nada, nada, solo el amor de tu pueblo, Allende, nada, nada. Solo el amor de tu pueblo, Allende. Presidente, está escrito tu nombre en una estrella y Salvador Allende se llaman los tranvías, los barcos castigados que surcan el oleaje, los trenes sudorosos de aceites y de lluvia, pero en tu patria nada lleva tu nombre, Allende. No volverás jamás, puesto que no te has ido No partirás jamás, puesto que te quedaste No borrarán tu gesto, ni esconderán tu sangre Ni harán de tu legado un manuscrito muerto Pues eres parte altiva de la historia de Chile en las calles de Chile ni en sus muros no estás en los mercados ni en las escuelas rotas pero sí en la memoria de los que defendiste con tu ideal tus manos y tu muerte inmortal nada, nada solo el amor de tu pueblo Allende nada, nada solo el amor de tu pueblo Allende, nada, nada, solo el amor de tu pueblo, Allende. Hay que...
que escribirte las murallas Hay que sacarte del silencio Hay que romper la cordillera para que vuelvas a caballo Hay que abrir huecos en el cielo para que bajes como un rayo Hay que abrir tumbas y panteones para que subas de la muerte Porque no hay nada que nos una como tu salvador Allende Porque no hay nada que nos una como tú Salvador Allende, porque no hay nada que nos una como tú, Salvador Allende, porque no hay nada que nos una como tú, Salvador Allende, porque no hay nada que nos una como tú, Salvador Allende. 130,000 people would be arrested and imprisoned in the first five, three years after the dictatorship. Over 3,000 people are believed to have been murdered or disappeared, and more than 30,000 were tortured by the Pinochet regime. One million Chileans fled the country during the dictatorship, and escape was made very difficult as other countries in South America uh, had fascist governments, and they would send people back to Chile to be imprisoned, tortured, and murdered. Soldiers were also posted outside of embassies in Chile to prevent people from, from leaving the country. And there's stories of people that, that would have to help their friends and family members go over the back wall of the embassy to be able to escape the country. I mean, this is the kind of horrific situation that there was at the time. By the 23rd of September, leftist literature, including books and essays about Marxism, social sciences, political science, and human rights, and also books by uh, Pablo Neruda and Gabriel Garcia Marquez, were seized and burned. And on one occasion... Soldiers burned books about Cubism, you know, the early 1900s artistic movement, because they thought it was about the Cuban Revolution. And book burnings were actually an occurrence throughout Pinochet's rule. That same day, on the 23rd of September, poet and Allende advisor Pablo Neruda would die of what was then claimed to be a heart attack. The 69-year-old was also battling cancer. But many, including Neruda himself, hours before his death, say that he was poisoned. Just this year in 2023, a team of experts from uh, two universities confirmed that the presence of a toxin in his blood really providing evidence that uh, Neruda, these claims that Neruda were poisoned were flat, in fact very plausible and likely. And many, many people accept that Neruda, Pablo Neruda, because of who he was, because of his support and work with Allende was targeted and he was killed. And so he's just another person that we add to this tragically horrifying long list of people that were murdered by, by that regime. Nueva Cancion and the traditional Andean instruments used to play it were banned, as was the music of Victor Jara, Violeta Parra, Inti Imani, Angel Parra, and so many others. Pinochet had ordered Nueva Cancion records to be seized, burned, and banned from record stores. Angel Para, Inti, Mani, and Quilapayun, as well as many other artists, would go into exile in Europe. And this would begin what musicologists had termed el apagón cultural, the cultural blackout. This is when people began making like illegal cassettes of Nueva Canción and other band artists. And Silvio Rodriguez first became known in Chile, he's a Cuban artist, first began known in Chile during the dictatorship after his album Diaz y Flores was circulated on this like black market cassettes. And he did a song on that album called Santiago de Chile, which is, of course, about the coup. And, of course, that was banned. That was banned not only in Chile, but also in Spain at the time uh, his music was banned. But this is that song that he, that he did, Santiago de Chile. Allí amé a una mujer terrible Llorando por el humo siempre eterno de aquella ciudad acorralada por símbolos de invierno. 
Allí aprendí a quitar con piel el frío Y a echar luego mi cuerpo a la llovizna En manos de la niebla dura y blanca En calles del enigma Eso no está muerto, no me lo mataron Ni con la distancia, ni con el mil soldado Eso no está muerto, no me lo mataron la distancia ni con el bisontado Allí entre los cerros tuve amigos Que entre bombas de humo eran hermanos Allí yo tuve más de cuatro cosas Que siempre he deseado Allí nuestra canción se hizo pequeña Entre la multitud desesperada Un poderoso canto de la tierra era quien más cantaba Eso no está muerto, no me lo mataron Ni con la distancia, ni con el vil soldado Eso no está muerto, no me lo mataron Ni con la distancia, ni con el vil Hasta allí me siguió como una sombra El rostro del que ya no se veía Y en el oído me susurró la muerte que ya aparecería Allí yo tuve un odio, una vergüenza Niños mendigos de la madrugada y el deseo de cambiar cada cuerda por un saco de balas Eso no está muerto, no me lo mataron Ni con la distancia, ni con el mil soldado Eso no está muerto, no me lo mataron Ni con la distancia, ni con el mil soldado Eso no está muerto, no me lo mataron Ni con la distancia, ni economic level, Pinochet's neoliberal capitalist policies undid every reform Allende had instituted. And these policies resulted in an economic crash in the 80s, an international debt crisis, bankruptcies in sectors of uh, banking, and high unemployment. Wages decreased and military spending increased. And the upper class was 
upper and upper middle classes were prospering, but the regular people were still suffering, okay? Because all the progress that had been done in those three short years of Allende's presidency was undone immediately. In fact, I have a story that at once makes me kind of uh, laugh and in another, in another sense makes me very angry because what we're taught about Pinochet, especially in the United States, I, I'll give you a little bit of background. I was uh, homeschooled. And so, and I'm very grateful for that. I think it's a wonderful thing. I think it's been very good for me. Uh, and it's, it's, create, it's made me the free, independent uh, thinker that I am. And of course, and I'm very grateful that, that, I, was, that I was taught history in, in a very strong way and uh, in, in a way that it was, very, it was very much foremost in my education. And there was a time I had a, there was a curriculum. I'm not going to mention which one, but it was a curriculum. Uh, that and you know they send the books and everything and uh, yeah and there was a history book and there was a section about Latin America and in the section my mother's reading through it and in the section it says that Pinochet was he it says under Pinochet the Chilean economy experienced great economic growth and my mother was furious she says y you're not reading this. <laughs> She said, this is propaganda. And I remember later her, that evening her telling my father, they said in her school that Pinochet was good for the economy. She says, Pinochet, like of all people, like, you know, how could they say that? And she was so upset about this. And it makes me laugh because when I got my test back, my grade wasn't as good as it, uh, as it usually was because, I, because my mother had said, you're not reading this because it had all this propaganda about Pinochet and all these other things in Latin America. So in that way, it makes me laugh. But in another way, it... I look at it and I say, look at the propaganda that the, in the United States that's passed off as education, that they can tell children, oh, Pinochet was good for the economy, but there was no mention in there of the human rights violations and of the things that he did. No mention of that, but he was good for the economy. And also, that's a blatant lie because he was absolutely not good for the economy. I mean, he absolutely crashed the economy and, uh, and made life even worse for the regular people of Chile, for the, for the regular uh, citizens at the time. Also important to mention that U.S. banks would later be involved in money laundering for Pinochet, including the Riggs Bank. Yet despite all this, despite the horrors that, the, the, that this military government that Pinochet is, is committing in the human rights violation that, that he's committing in Chile, the, the way that he's absolutely ruined the economy and just in every single way in the country um, just, being, just being absolutely horrific, here we're going to hear... The U.S., the, the Chile's ambassador, the military's ambassador to the United States, Walter Heitman. And he's going to tell us now, he's going to tell us all these stories that I've just told you about the torture, the disappearances, and all the horrors that the Chilean people experienced. And were in fact not true. He's going to tell us that, in fact, there is no torture at all in Chile. So we're going to hear him say that right now. I would say Chile is no torture because if I say there's a little, they would say, ah, well, there's somewhere there's torture. There's no torture. That somebody t abuses his authority, that's possible, that's out of control. There's as much torture as there's right now in the United States, I would say, because torture's everywhere. Little boys playing on the ground and somebody wants the other one to tell him the truth while he twists his arm. Always, uh, and in every country, there's a little bit of, I don't call it torture, there's a little of, uh, it's, a, it's a technicality that people from police and others used to know the truth. So despite what Walter Heitman just said there, which uh, I don't need to tell you, is a blatant lie, 
between 1975 and 1989, there was a really collusion between the right-wing governments of Argentina, Bolivia, Brazil, Chile, Paraguay, Peru, and Uruguay. But this, this, this was founded by Pinochet in November 1975. And it was called Operation Condor or Plan Condor. And this was a system, systematic political repression, terrorism, assassination of leftists, imprisonment of political opponents, uh, intelligence operations, and the U.S. government and CIA-backed coups, as well as the systematic torture of political opponents. That's what Operation Condor was. And so there's an estimated 80,000 murdered or disappeared by this Operation Condor. Some of them, by the way, were U.S. or uh, 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 European citizens. At least 402 people were killed in Operation Condor operations that crossed uh, international borders. 400,000 were imprisoned, and they systematically went after activists, labor union leaders, le uh, socialists, intellectuals, teachers, students with leftist politics, as well as priests and nuns who spoke out against the government or just dissidents of any kind. And the U.S. government supported Operation Condor through the Ford, Carter, and Reagan administrations. This U.S. government, usually the CIA, was actually supplying military juntas militarily, providing training for assassins, and they helped these governments develop databases to track leftists, making escape from these dictatorships even harder for those that were on blacklist, which basically meant that you would be imprisoned, tortured, and even killed. In some cases, the CIA was involved in the planning and coordination of these condor operations. The U.S. government was, high, was of course, aware of these actions. Henry Kissinger received briefings on actions from the uh, of these right-wing governments. And the State Department briefings show that Kissinger was also aware of Operation Condor plans to assassinate exiled leftists in France and Portugal. The, uh, the fact that this man, this, that Henry Kissinger, has a Nobel Peace Prize is probably one of the most repugnant hypocrisies. And honestly, at this point, if you're going to give Henry Kissinger, with how much blood is on his hands, a Nobel Peace Prize, you might as well at this point give one to Hitler, too. Because that's a slap in the face to his victims, whether they're in Chile or Vietnam or Cambodia or East Timor. This man has caused millions. And I, yes, I do say millions of deaths around the world. And it is disgusting that he has a Nobel Peace Prize. Manuel Contreras, who was, of course, as I said, head of the DINA, was a close paid contact of the CIA even after his role in the Letelier assassination surfaced. CIA documents from 1977 also show that France, the UK, and West Germany looked into using Operation Condor-style operations to deal with leftist subversives in Europe as well as an anti-subversion organization similar to Condor, where intelligence agencies in Europe could create databases to target leftists. And I, I do wish that this was a conspiracy theory, that this wasn't, this was just a, a joke, a sick joke of some kind, but it's not because it comes directly from CIA memos that, yes, Europe wanted to do a similar thing of Operation Condor. In 1975, a DINA, a DINA operation to make uh, 119 leftists said to be members of the Movimiento Izquierda Revolucionaria, the, the MIR, the, the, the MIR, known as the Miristas, who were opponents of the Pinochet regime uh, disappear created international outcry because and so this because the internationally they were saying what happened to 119 people that have just disappeared and this was causing an uncomfortable uh, situation for Pinochet so Peter Kornbluth says quote the regime had already disappeared hundreds of Chilean leftists and now they face this issue how to make the disappeared reappear that was the crux of Operation Colombo end quote 
And that's what this operation was called. And the way to do this was to frame other leftists for their murders. So remember Augustine Edwards Eastman? So I talked about him in last week's episode. If you listened, remember who Augustine Edwards Eastman is, the, the media mogul, really. This is where he comes back into the story because his media empire plays a huge role in this operation. In fact, they, are, they, 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 are, they were key to this operation. So dozens of the bodies of the people that had been disappeared and murdered were dumped in the streets of Argentina. And they were made unrecognizable in various heinous ways, uh, which I, I won't describe. But they were left with their IDs so that they could be identified. And their deaths were then blamed on other leftists. And it was the idea was to say, oh, look at these leftists. Look how they kill each other. See, it's them that are committing the violence, not Pinochet. Pinochet would never do that. And so stories were run in Argentina and in Chile by the Edwards Media Dynasty. Lea, which means read, it's, it's a completely fake newspaper that was created just on one occasion. It was literally created just for a propaganda campaign, a fake news campaign. And it was made specifically to run stories claiming that these Chilean leftists had fled Chile only to go to Argentina and then start fighting with each other and kill each other. And that's what all these deaths of dozens of bodies that were found in Argentina, literally in the street, uh, were blamed on the left. They said, oh, well, it's the left that does this. And Mercurio publishes an article that I'm going to read from right now. And they say, the politicians and foreign newsmen who ask, who ask themselves so many times about the fate of these leftists and blame the Chilean government for the disappearances of many of them now have the explanation that they refuse to accept. Victims of their own methods, exterminated by their own comrades. Every one of them demonstrates with tragic eloquence that violent people end up falling victims to the blind and implacable terror that they provoke. End quote. So there it is, very clearly, Edmund Curio blaming the deaths of all these leftists that would be murdered by Pinochet on other leftists. La Segunda, another Edwards newspaper, really wrote a horrific headline that said, Miristas exterminated like rats. Peter Cornblow continues, so it was a whole manipulation of the truth of what had happened. But many Chileans, particularly upper-class Chileans, read this and said, ah, aha, we knew all along, you know, the left kills each other. Pinochet is clean. He would never do such a thing. But now I'm sure we're all wondering what was the U.S. government's response to all this? Because we know that how, how involved they are in all this, that they knew about the coup. Well, firstly, we've established that they were clearly aware that the of the repression against political opponents that was planned. That's exemplified by a 21st of September 1973 CIA memo saying, quote-unquote, severe repression is planned. The U.S. support for Pinochet was clear and unequivocal, as was material and intelligence support for the DINA and Operation Condor. Days after the coup, uh, Kissinger sent an ambassador to convey, quote, our strongest desires to cooperate closely and establish Firm basis of, for cordial and most constructive relationship. We're going to hear Peter Cornblue talking about Kissinger's key role in, in the embrace of Pinochet by the U.S. government. We're going to listen to that right now. And Kissinger really is the, the, not only the key survivor of the policymaking team of that era, but truly when you go through the declassified documents that are laid out in the book, The Pinochet File, you see that he is the singular most important figure in engineering a policy to overthrow Allende and then, even more, to embrace Pinochet and the human rights violations that followed. Um, he had aides who were saying to him, it's unbecoming for the United States to intervene in a country where, where we are not, our national security interests are not threatened. And he pushed them away. Nope. We can't, we can't let this imitative phenomenon, we have to stop Allende from being successful. He had aides that came to him the day after the coup and said, 
I'm getting reports that there's 10,000 bodies in the streets, people are being slaughtered. And he said, go tell Congress that this new military regime is better for our interests than the old government in Chile. And we have this fabulous document of him talking to Pinochet, a meeting in 1976, in which his aides have told him, you should tell Pinochet to stop violating human rights. And instead he says to Pinochet, you did a great service to the West in overthrowing Allende. We want to support you, not hurt you. Kissinger was asked by the Assistant Secretary for, uh, of State for Inter-American Affairs what to tell Congress about reports of massacres in Chile. And he says, quote, I think we should understand our policy that however unpleasant they act, this government is better for us than Allende was, end quote. The U.S. government would continue funding El Mercurio until 1974. In 1975, Kissinger directly told Pinochet, my evaluation is that you're the victim of all these left-wing groups around the world and that your greatest sin was that you overthrew a government that was going communist, end quote. Later that year, Kissinger told Chilean Foreign Minister Admiral Patricio Carvajal, well, I read the briefing for this meeting and it was nothing but human rights. The State Department is made up of people who have a vocation for the ministry. Because there were not enough churches for them, they went into the Department of State. And then both of them laughed. There here is Kissinger to Pinochet in 1976. General Pinochet, we wanted, I wanted to meet you with you because I'm being forced to give this speech on human rights and I wanted to tell you that the speech is not about you. I believe that you are a victim of left-wing propaganda around the world and that your only crime was overthrowing a government that was going communist. In the United States, as, as you know, we are sympathetic with what you are trying to do here. We want to help you, not undermine you. You did a great service to the West in overthrowing Allende. Later in the 1976 meeting between Pinochet and Kissinger, Pinochet says that Orlando Letelier, who was working in Washington at the time to bring attention to the human rights violations in Chile, is a liar and that something needs to be done about him to stop him from lying. Later that summer, Orlando Letelier would be murdered in Washington, D.C., right on Embassy Row, in this kind of collaboration between the DINA and Luis Posada Carriles. His Cuban exile terrorist organization, which was the coordination of United Revolutionary Organizations, and with the knowledge of the U.S. government and Henry Kissinger. A car bomb would kill Letelier and his 25-year-old American colleague, Ronnie Moffitt. Moffitt's husband, Michael, would survive the attack. And it was just so horrific. It's hap this happens right in Washington. And the U.S. governments, by the way, were, were not the only ones who had these fraternal feelings for Pinochet. Okay. UK's Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher, said to Pinochet, he, she, she says to him that, that she understood that he had brought democracy to Chile and that he had created a thriving economy. And then she dismisses his bloody human rights record, saying his critics were the organized international left who were bent on revenge. What's more, the U.S. banks approved credits and loans that had been blocked during the popular unity government. And they resume these immediately when Pinochet takes power.
Despite the atmosphere of terror and the heinous actions of the military and torture being used as a form of government, resistance against Pinochet never stopped. Revolutionary leftist movements and regular people stood up to this savage repression in numerous ways. We're going to hear Ariel Dorfman on the juxtaposition of the resistance from Chile and Chileans versus the U.S.'s uh, response after 9-11, September 11th in 2001. These perspective 9-11s. And he's juxtapositioning them, and I find this to be really very, very interesting. So we're going to hear Ariel talking about it. It's very strange. It's as if um, history wanted me to be in both places and, and to somehow bring them together, juxtapose them, and find some meaning to this. This. I mean, one of the meanings, of course, is that it's very ironic that the United States should be attacked on a Tuesday, September 11th, uh, exactly the same date when the United States fostered a coup in Chile that bombed the presidential palace on a Tuesday from the air and also created such havoc. It, it's a very ironic sort of just juxtaposition, but I, I've gone beyond the immediate sense of the United States, which creates coups around the world and terror around the world and then receives terror uh, undeservedly in that sense because you know there's no reason why the United States should, should, should have these horrors happen to it but here's the here's the thing that I've gone beyond the, the, the mere juxtaposition here Chile reacted to the terror that was inflicted upon us with nonviolent resistance in other words for instance give you an example we did not go and bomb Washington because Washington had ordered and, and helped to create the coup in Chile on the contrary, we created a, a peaceful revolution against Pinochet. And if you contrast that to the United States to what Bush did as a result of this very small band of terrorists, the results have been absolutely terrible. I mean, it, you know, if this was a test, and I think great catastrophes are always tests of, of national values and national will, uh, alas, the United States has, has failed that test terribly. If you look, I mean, at, at the results of, of September 11th, 19, uh, of, uh, September 11th, 2001, uh, it has been just terrible what has happened. The Movimiento de Izquierda Revolucionaria, the MIR, were the largest group that carried out armed actions, and they were able to successfully assassinate several military personnel, such as Lieutenant Roger Vergara and General Carlos Ibanez. They also attacked Los Carabineros, and they would plant bombs in police stations. There was also, in 1983, the Marxist guerrilla organization Frente Patriotico Manuel Rodriguez, the FPMR, uh, and, the, and they had tried to assassinate Pinochet in 1986. They were supported by Cuba and Fidel Castro. F uh, Cuba advised the FPMR to, in preparation for their Pinochet assassination attempts, and Fidel, right after the coup happens in 73, had voiced his unequivocal support for the Chilean people immediately afterwards we're actually going to hear him this is in 1973 voicing uh, his support for really made it quite unequivocal where he stood on that the FPMR actually successfully assassinated the writer of the 1980 Pinochet-era constitution, uh, Jaime Guzman, in 1991. And the State Department classified the FPMR as a terrorist organization, while the State Department, the U.S. government, is backing literal state-sponsored terrorism on the part of Pinochet and the military in Chile. But what Ariel talks about in that, quote that we, in that clip that we just heard 
it was that most of the resistance against Pinochet were peaceful actions, such as the days of national protests, the Las Jornadas de Protesta Nacional, which were met with brutal police repression. And again, Ariel Dorfman remembers one such protest. He says, in such an atmosphere of terror, the very congregating of citizens to protest was considered by our rulers to be an act of defiance. I can remember one such insubordinate meeting in the central plaza of Santiago. It must have been in the late 80s when I barely managed to being dragged into a van and beaten by riot police, even though we were merely singing Beethoven's Ode to Joy, end quote. And that's just one example. Some experienced even more hellish repression during these protests. During a 19, July 1986 day of national protest, Rodriguez Andres Rojas de Negri, who was a 21-year-old photographer, and Carmen Gloria Quintana, an 18-year-old student, were beaten, doused with kerosene, and set on fire. They were then driven 20 kilometers by the police and dumped in a dry irrigation ditch, left there to die. Both De Negri and Quintana regained consciousness there, and they were found by police uh, patrol who took them to the hospital. And they both had absolutely horrific injuries. De Negri died four days later, and Quintana suffered third and fourth degree burns on 62% of her body, multiple broken teeth, and she spent weeks in critical condition. She actually, uh, she actually moved to Canada, and she still works at the Chilean embassy there. And then there were those who left Chile, and, and, they, and they were talking about the reality of their people around the world. And they were exposing the heinous face of fascism as they had personally seen it, because they personally saw that demonic face of what fascism truly is. And they, be, they, they would continue to be a fearless voice for their people. And of course, there were the musicians who did that. There was Angel Parra, Inti Mani, Kila Payun, so many others, among others, that traveled singing that reality of what they had lived through and of the victims of that regime. But I'm sure we all want to know, how did this all finally come to an end? How, 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 did, how was Pinochet finally removed from office? How did, the, how did the nightmare end? Well, in 1988, a plebiscite was held to decide if Pinochet would continue ruling for another eight years or leave office. And after he was defeated, the people chose for him to leave office, he tried to do another coup. Again, what can you really expect from someone as, in all honesty, sociopathic and debased as Pinochet? So, of course, he tries to do another coup. And he, he tried to orchestrate chaos and violence so that he could declare a state of emergency and seize power again. Now, the other members of the junta, having distanced themselves from Pinochet over the previous years, refused to give him more military power so he could take Santiago in a coup. And in fact, one general ripped up a document that would authorize Pinochet's emergency powers. And without the support of these other generals, he finally gave up and accepted defeat. The presidential and parliamentary elections took place on the 14th of December 1989, and Patricio Alwin, who was a Christian Democrat, won the election. And over the past 33 years, Chile has been able to return to a stable democracy. They had a stable return to democracy, one of the most stable countries in Latin America. And the presidents over these years have ranged from center and right uh, to socialists, the latest being Gabriel Boric, who is a socialist. And really, we see immense progress made in Chile over these years.
in Chile is ongoing. The families of victims of the regime and the desaparecidos have fought for justice, working to unearth what happened to their loved ones and get justice for them. And I think Joan Hara is one example because, I mean, she's absolutely heroic. She's the reason that Victor's, the, the, the man who murdered Victor Hara, Pedro, uh, Pedro Pablo Barrientos, was found. And the reason that he has, as of recently, July 2023, had his U.S. citizenship revoked. And I, and I affirm and I pray that he will finally be extradited to face charges in Chile. And Joan is one of so many that continues to fight for justice now, 50 years later. And she always, she always says that she does this not only to keep Victor alive but, and get justice for him, obviously, but for all those that were murdered and disappeared by the dictatorship. We're actually going to hear her talking about that in this next clip. And I must say, I have to say that uh, it's not for uh, the wish for re revenge. It's not, not because of a sort of being filled with hatred or anger, really. 
as my own daughter said uh, very recently, this isn't for the past, it's for the future. It's for the young people who de today who have to see that justice can be done and that the truth can be found. It's very important uh, for people in Chile, for the Chilean society, because this sort of uh, wound uh, which so many families have suffered, this goes p passing from generation from generation to generation. And that's really the important thing today, and that's why we persist yeah, in this, uh, uh, well, some people would call it an, an obsession for, for justice and truth. Yeah. In 1992, a reparations pension was created for the victims' family by uh, by the victims' families by Patricio Alwin. And in 1995, the Punta Puerco prison was actually built for those who had been part of uh, to imprison those who had been part of Pinochet's government and who were found guilty of crimes against humanity, including Manuel Contreras and Marcelo Moren Brito. And many have been brought to justice. Not all, not enough. They're, you know, it, it, when it comes to the pursuit of justice in that way. You know, we look at it's 50 years later and we're still, there's still people that have yet to face the consequences. I mean, one example, Pedro Pablo Barrientos needs to face the consequences for what he did. And it's been 50 years and we're looking and we're saying, well, you know, a after all this time, it's still so important to, to, uh, to, to pursue that. And so there has been, you know, cases where, where there has been at least a bit of justice in that way. For the victims families but in many cases there isn't and i feel the only way in those cases that there aren't i think one of the most important vital things that we can do is never forget what happened to them you know never let them be be forgotten because uh even if they can't even if in this life at least there isn't justice for them i think that by remembering them, we make sure that their sacrifices were not in vain of course, there were multiple attempts to prosecute Pinochet, and by the time he was deemed well enough to stand trial in Chile, he died. In a touch of irony, however, and this is where I look and I see this is very spiritual, he died on the 10th of December, International Human Rights Day. And I find that to be just, it's so significant, you know? Because uh, you're talking about someone who was one of the most notorious people, of the a symbol of the violation of human rights. And he winds up dying on International Human Rights Day. I think there's just something very spiritual about that. Ariel Dorfman writes in his 2021 article for The Guardian titled, I Live Through the Darkness of the Pinochet Era, Is Chile Heading Back There? About a young Chilean that he talked to when Pinochet died in 2006. And he says, quote, I can't recall his name now, only that having been born after the dictatorship, he harbored an immense well of sorrow at having never met his grandfather, one of those swallowed by the night and fog of the dictatorship. He assured me that it was his abuelo who had come for Pinochet, not the clogged arteries or the heart attack, he said. The dead took him away. Those whom Pinochet killed, the ghosts of Chile, they are the guardians of our democracy and will not let us down. And I think about that because what Ariel wrote there is very significant as well. And that young man, whoever it was that he was talking to, proved right. Because just two years ago, in 2021, a 35-year-old socialist, Gabriel Boric, won the election against a son of literal Nazis, Pinochet defender, far-right candidate, Jose Antonio Cast, who had promised to defund the Museum of Memory and Human Rights. And he said, he actually says, oh, if Pinochet was alive, he'd vote for me. So we're talking about, you're looking at these two candidates, one representing... Everything, one representing that very dark era in Chilean history and, 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 and representing that fascism and the other representing the future. 
And the people of Chile chose chose Gabriel Boric, the one who, the, the socialist, and he, they chose to move forward. And I think that that is just uh, wonderful. In that same article for The Guardian, just before Boric's election, uh, Ariel wrote, on Boric's side, we there is not only the hope that millions of li living Chileans will vote in the upcoming elections not to go back to an authoritarian past, but also perhaps that the dead will inspire those they left behind not to betray their pain and memory. Perhaps those guardians of my country's dignity, the ghosts of those that Pinochet banished from this world, will protect their compatriots as we decide the fate of our beloved and besieged land. End quote. Just days ago, also, I find important to mention, on the 30th of August, International Day of the Disappeared, Boric announced plans to search for the remains of over 1,000 people disappeared during Pinochet's regime. In 2022, a referendum to draft a new constitution to replace the Pinochet-era one was overwhelmingly approved. And that new constitution has been drafted, and ratification talks and amendments continue, and hopefully in the future it will be, it, it will be accepted and it will be ratified. The new constitution is incredibly progressive, probably one of the most progressive constitutions in the world, working to preserve and defend human rights, special protections for the environment, and avoid repeating the wrongs of the past. It includes the right to just, truth, justice, and memory, and reparation in the case of human rights violations. And I think that's so beautiful because memory, memory is the only way that we can move forward. We can never forget these things that happen because that's how we honor them. And even in those cases, as I just said, that where, where there isn't justice, when we have memory, it's still a way to show that those sacrifices were not in vain. They, were, they, they never will be in vain. On another front, Chile is also making great progress. Uh, according to the International Energy Agency, Chile has taken a globally leading role in clean energy. Chile is also the first country in Latin America to present a long-term climate change plan. Chile's climate goals include 70% of the country's electricity coming from renewable source resources by 2030. In this area, they're actually ahead of their goals. Uh, and 53% of Chile's energy now comes from renewable sources. Bu building renewable energy infrastructure has actually become cheaper there than building fossil fuel or coal plants. And the country has set a goal to be carbon neutral by 2050. They also plan on phasing out coal by 2040 for climate and social reasons. Economically, the country continues to grow at steady rates. The poverty rate has fallen significantly from 40% in 1990, just after Pinochet, to less than 10% today, which is actually less than the United States, incredibly. Education indicators are also very promising. The high school graduation rate is 90%. That's actually higher than the United States as well, as is university enrollment in universities where Chile ranks higher than the U.S. and many other so-called first world countries. Literacy rate is also 96%, so that's actually very close to Cuba, which is at 97%, and of course that's much higher than the United States. Health indicators are good. Life expectancy has risen to almost 80. Again, older than the, uh, longer than the United States' uh, life expectancy. And of course, no, things aren't perfect. Perfection doesn't exist in this world, but they are continuing to move in a better direction. Progress had and continues to be made. And yes, Pinochet still incredibly has supporters in Chile. And they'll argue that he never violated human rights and he's just being framed by the left. However, they have not inhibited the growth. I mean, Chile is still moving in a better direction. They're farther ahead than many countries in the world when it comes to climate change. A leader in renewable energy in Latin America, they have moved, moved in, in a very... It, it, very powerful to me is their emphasis on memory. Even now, 
in this new constitution that's being drafted is a right to memory, to remember those things that happened. Never forget um, th those things that happened. The Pinochet era really ingrained a deep wound in the psyche of Chile. But what, what is more important to look at is if people work to heal that wound. And I invoke that they are, that over time the pain and trauma caused to the, to the people in the country will be healed. Memory is vital to heal these wounds, and Chileans don't want to forget what happened. And that's what, to me, is beautiful. Because I'm seeing a people, a beautiful example of how a people can keep the memory of their ancestors and the sacrifices they made alive, and refuse to forget them and their immortal example, and never want to forget them. And these ancestors, these heroes, are the immortal stars, the light that guides us and illuminates our path. Ustedes que ya escucharon la historia que se contó, no sigan allí sentados pensando que ya pasó. No basta solo el recuerdo, el canto no bastará. No basta solo el lamento, miremos la Yeah.
that was Kilapayun, Canción Final. And to end off, I wanted to end with a poem that I found I think would be perfect to, to, to end this off with. A, song, a, a poem that I wrote that's titled Someone Tell the Imperialist You Can Never Catch a Spirit. And there's so many people that I think this could apply to. There's so many people that I had in mind. And then I realized that it was perfect to end off this episode with it. Someone tell the imperialist you can never catch a spirit. Like a puff of tobacco smoke, just when you thought you had him, he was gone, standing on the tallest mountain, laughing, with a light that illuminated those who could see it, voice blowing on the wind, still echoing, multiplying, setting fire to illusions, ripping lies to shreds. Sometimes a soft murmur in summer grass, others times a raging tempest of truth. His grito now immortal, fire still burning, bullets planting flowers of hope. Someone tell the imperialist you can't catch a spirit. And the colonial overlords that a vision can't be stopped when it flies through the cosmos. Tell the coward truth is absolute, and the one who denies the reality of spirit denies himself and the very breath he takes. And to the merchants of hate, the peddlers of war, let the knowledge of justice haunt them. The shadow of the imperial banner is illuminated by the light of the sun. The roar of engines will never be stronger than the heartbeat of the earth. Venceremos. Viva el pueblo. Viva Chile. Viva Chile. Viva el pueblo. Viva los trabajadores. Pero que lo entiendan aquellos que quieren retrotraer la historia y desconocer a la voluntad mayoritaria de Chile. Sin tener carne de martir. No hay un paso atrás. ¿Y qué nos lleva? Allende Presidente, te vengo a saludar, tu presencia está viva, de la montaña al mar, eterna en la memoria de Chile que sufrió, por la arrastre de infamia de un general traidor, cobarde y asesino, así lo llamo yo. Allende Presidente, usted fue la esperanza de un mundo de justicia, sin odios ni venganza, Allende Compañero, Usted que resistió, la metralla en la mano tenía la razón, la dignidad era parte de vuestro corazón. Quien ordenó la muerte, Kissinger o Nixon, consumaron el crimen, horror y delación. La CIA, los fascistas, pagado en Washington, el pueblo desarmado no tuvo protección. Cae la noche en Chile, torturas y prisión, el pueblo desarmado no tuvo protección. Cae la noche en Chile, torturas y prisión.
Oyente combatiente, maestro presidente, los hijos de la patria hoy te dicen presente la luz de tu memoria, lealtad, valentía, quedaron en la historia como una profecía. La justicia demora, pero al fin llega un día, presidente chileno, hermano, compañero, volvemos a cantar, contigo venceremos. Indican el sendero, justicia, pan, trabajo, escuelas para el pueblo, mujeres combativas, ardientes como el fuego, renuevan la confianza, firmes como el acero, treinta años han pasado, vuelves a aparecer, los traidores se pudren, se morirán de sed, tu imagen se agiganta, tus ideas también, el pueblo nunca olvida a quien lo quiso bien, y escriben en los muros, vuelves a florecer, allende presidente. Que sirva la ocasión, denuncio aquí la infamia, la noche del terror, de brutos carceleros que imponen el dolor, violando la inocencia, que le pidan perdón, a la bandera patria, a Víctor al amor. Vendrán otros momentos de historia y emoción El cuento no termina cantando esta canción Seguiremos luchando con fuerza, con pasión Semilla que sembraste por la revolución 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 Keep dancing, keep honoring your ancestors Con mucho, mucho cariño Chao mi gente If you like that show, please don't hesitate to reach out to me and leave me a voice message on Anchor. There is a link up in the description. You can also reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Voice of the Water Lily or check out my blog, voiceofthelily.water.blog. You can leave me a message on any of those platforms. Um, and please reach out. Let me know what you think of the show. If you have any suggestions, song requests, or anything, please reach out to me. And um, also, if I got something wrong and you want to correct me, please don't hesitate to reach out. Um, and, uh, until next time, ciao.